0: We've been, uh, I've been, talking about the blockages to the contemplative life. Now, for those of you who are maybe not aware, the effect stands on two pillars, and the first pillar is understanding Jesus from a first century Hebrew point of view, which is absolutely critical, especially looking through the lens of the language that he spoke, an Eastern language to an Eastern people in an Eastern um, society and environment, uh, but also through the cultural lens and through the, the uh, you know, the, the, just the Jewish Hebrew worldview. To understand it from that place changes the message and makes it practical, makes it an everyday way of living life, rather than a theological expression in the abstract. But the second is, if we're really going to make that happen in our lives, because Jesus' first followers call themselves followers of the way, not followers of Jesus, but followers of the way, because they understood that engagement in this way of living life was everything in terms of living and emulating the way Jesus lived and loved. And so contemplative practice is the other pillar on which we rest. And of course, that parts up to each one of you individually. What we can do here corporately is to talk about it. We can uh, emulate what we can do in, in a community setting in terms of understanding that the The silence and the solitude and the mindfulness is part of this. But what you do in your private practice is going to make the difference in terms of how much you really understand and experience and become convinced of Jesus' message. And that's what we're all about, the personal conviction, the personal experience of this life with the Father that Jesus called kingdom right here and right now. So. We've been talking, I've been talking about what are the blockages to actually engaging that kind of life. And we've been doing that for, for weeks now. And I want to start talking about what is really at issue in terms of contemplative experience and contemplative practice. And the first item on the agenda has to be awareness. We need to talk about awareness, because awareness is everything. Contemplative practice in Jesus' way is awareness building, and so we need to talk about awareness. But what is awareness, and how do we understand it? I was talking with a a nurse uh, who was retiring after 44 years of being a nurse, and she at the same hospital, no less. So she watched this hospital just grow and grow and grow. And after 40 years, she's going to be retiring. In fact, she just did last Friday. And at the same time, she was moving out of the house that she's lived in with her husband for the last 30 years, raised their children there and everything. So, And then he just retired about four or five months ago. Anyway, everything in their lives that has been an anchor, everything in their lives that has been a foundation is changing all at the same time. But for her personally, to be losing her identity as a nurse, at least in the way that she's understood it for the last 44 years, and then to lose the house that has been the anchor and the place for her children's um, childhood and all that has been a real kick for her in, in the negative way, in the sense that she's losing so much of her identity, losing who she thought she was, losing that, that, that built-up sense of self after all these decades. And so we were talking about the importance of her as she moves into this new area, where she's moving uh, to be closer to her children and grandchildren, it's going to be absolutely vitally important for her to immediately jump into the deep end of the pool and plant her roots in that community and find community and find connection, find a church again. You know, the, the church she has up here she needs to replant, but really connect in a way that she can find presence again, find connection and community. And as we were talking about that, she flashed and something clicked in her, and she said, "I just got to tell you, you know, my husband's parents, her her father and mother-in-law, seven and a half, eight years ago, um, retired and moved to Las Vegas, and so they moved from Southern California to Las Vegas. And seven years later, her mother-in-law died, and they had just recently been back, another one of the changes in their lives, to Las Vegas for the funeral. And she said she was absolutely floored." How many people were at that funeral? She said it was it was just it was in the hundreds and there were people like store clerks and and wait staff that was there, you know? And you know just think about that for a second. In 7 years this woman had the impact on all of those people. All the way down to store clerks, all the way down to restaurant wait servers that she had been present enough to, connected enough to, that they came to her memorial service. That's amazing if you think about it. In seven years, to be able to have that kind of impact, that kind of connection. I was thinking, I wish I knew her. I wanted to experience this myself. In fact, I want to be her when I grow up. See, this is, the, this is where this is really going, right? I mean, how did she manage to do that? You know. Think of that presence. Think of the impression that she had on everyone that she met because of who she was. And I want you to think about, is there anyone in your life that has had that kind of impression, made that kind of impression on you, had that kind of impact on you? And if so, who was it? Just take a second, is there someone who stands head and shoulders above the rest that really had that kind of impact? Was it a parent? Was it a teacher? Was it a coach? Maybe it was a, you know, person of the cloth, maybe it was a friend, family member. Who was it that had that kind of impact, that connected with you in such a way that they still are a huge part of your memory and a part of your life that you carry with you? What was your experience of this person? I guarantee with them, you felt heard. You felt seen by them, right? You felt remembered. You felt accepted. You felt liked, valued. All these things were there, that sense of connection and acceptance. You left feeling better about yourself every time you encountered this person. They left you better than when they found them, found you at every turn. And not only that, they did it reliably. They did it repeatedly. This wasn't just a one-off. Every time you showed up, they were there. And every time that they were there, it was the same person who was showing up. They weren't wildly pinging off. You know, they had their emotions regulated to the point that you could know what you were getting every time that you met this person. And they were always where they were supposed to be. And you could count on them being where you connected with them. And not only that, they could probably flex around your dysregulation, (laughs) around your unreliability in such a way that they could always be present to you wherever you were. And they could sense and they had the ability to deliver what you needed at that moment, whether it was tough in the case of a coach or a teacher, or whether it was soft in the case of a friend. But they could navigate that. They could code switch in that way to deliver what was needed because they were present enough to see what was needed at the time. I wanted to tell you about a a couple of the people in my life and see if this sort of brings this point home to you. I went to Catholic school for 12 years, and in high school we were taught by brothers, Irish Christian brothers. Eventually, I was so struck by them that I entered the community, I joined the order at the end of high school. It didn't last long, but, uh, but at least I, I was so impressed with them. One of the reasons was is because they didn't have families, they didn't have wives or children. We knew that they were there for us, they lived on campus, we knew where they were going to be. We had their address. And Brother Kavaleski, who we all called Brother Ski, was one of those. He was only 12 years older than me. I didn't know that at the time. So he was just a kid, too. He was 29 to my 17, 18. And yet he was one of those that I could trust in that way, who was reliable that way. I could go late at night and throw rocks at his window, and he'd come down and talk to me in the the little foyer room, the little ante room that they had there. And I remember one night doing that, throwing rocks, and he came down, and we sat. I mean, I was so depressed. You know, I remember just sitting there on that chair looking down at my feet, and I can still see my feet. I was barefoot. I mean, who does that anymore? You know, I was always barefoot at that time. I was always at the beach, I was here, I was always barefoot. And I'm looking down at my feet, and he's telling me, You better smile or I'm going to kick your butt. But that's, you know, that's the way he could relate to me. He gave me what I needed. And of course I wouldn't smile, and so he started to <laughs> kick my. And then of course I started laughing, and the moment was uh, was over. It's like he knew what to do and when to do it. He could he could just feel the situation, and I f- felt secure. I knew that I wouldn't get in trouble if I threw his threw rocks at his window at two o'clock in the morning, that he was there and he would come down. And when I did join the order and I went to the house of formation outside of Chicago, the uh, the novice master there, brother. Brother Dalton, and I'll never forget him, either. And uh, he was someone who just had this sense of calm, the sense of peace about him, even though I, at, now at 18 plus, was just pinging all over the place and just a, you know, just a hot mess. And I didn't even realize what a hot mess I was. But he was able to just keep the lid on things. He was all about the rules. He was all about setting rules in the house because he was trying to teach us, and of course I didn't get this, trying to teach us kids how to live with men of all ages from all walks of life in one residence. How do you do that? you got to have rules, you know. It has to be a curfew. One of the things was a curfew. We had to be in bed by such and such. We never did that. We were always in each other's rooms and talking and laughing and I remember one night we were doing that and I looked down the hallway because it was really a long hall and there was a firewall in the middle of the hallway with a special door and on the other side of that firewall I could see his silhouette. He was standing just on the other side of that door in the dark aware of all of us but choosing not to die on that particular hill that particular night. He knew when to push. He knew when to pull back and of course the next day he instituted the no napping rule in the Afternoons, right? So that was his response to see if he could fatigue us out of the process. But I pushed him. I continued to push his authority because that's who I was at that time. You know, the first the first day I was there, I showed up at chapel in the morning, bleary-eyed because I overslept in a baseball jersey, um, jeans with patches and macrame all over them and bare feet again. And of course, he met me in the aisleway and marched me out and had me change. I, I just can't believe I did that now. But that's who I was. And he looked at it, understood. And of course, I was the only one from the West Coast. The rest were all Midwesterners. They thought I was just as nuts as he probably did. But then he instituted the rule that we all had to wear shoes and socks in the house at all times. And so I was always pushing him on that, trying to get away with my bare feet, and he'd catch me and he made me go back. And then I started wearing shoes without the socks, thinking my jeans would hide that, right? Because, oh, I'm being really... Sl- but then he got to where he was looking under the table at, uh, in the dining room, and he caught me without socks, sent me out. And so the last time I did this, I came back in wearing my socks over my shoes. Because he didn't, he didn't tell me what order it had to be, it was just socks and shoes, right? So this is the, the, the kind of kid that I was at the time, and he was trying to deal with this while keeping you know nine other postulants, first years, in place. And I remember where it finally ended was that I remember I was laying on my bed uh, in the afternoon and there was a bunch of guys in my room and we were all talking and laughing and I saw the lights go on and off outside my door in the hallway. And I made this really loud, crude, you know, who is screwing around with the lights kind of thing. And the next thing I know, he's at the door. He was a wrestling coach, by the way. One leap into the room, both knees on my chest, flips me over into half Nelson and is screaming in my ear. I don't remember what he said, but he obviously had enough. All I remember is this voice, this hot breath and voice in my ear and looking around at all these horrified faces of all these other guys in my room. And I don't remember anything else about that incident. But he pulled me into his office after that and said, look, I can't let you win because if you win i lose all these other guys and i got it i understood then and i stopped being such a jerk you know i realized okay i finally understand but he had the presence and the grace to work with me through all of that when he could have just lost it early on or Sent me back, and he could a lot of things he could have done. Not only that, ten years later, when I was trying to get a job in the Catholic school system as a school teacher, and I needed a reference, I called him. He was up in Vallejo at the time, and he sent a reference on my behalf. You know, this is the kind of connection, and I only knew him for a short amount of time. And then in my thirties, when I was living up at Sarah Retreat, there was Emery Tang, and you've all heard about him, the Franciscan up there. You know. But when I came in, loaded for bear, trying to debate a point that he had made in the last convocation, when he just put that hand in my face and just stopped me cold, wouldn't even hear what I had to say, and just said, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. You, go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And I thought that was a slap in the face. I thought that was a cop-out, an evasion. And now I realize it's exactly what I needed to hear and hear 40 years, 30 years later, I'm telling you the story again because he still is there in my heart, in my mind. He still is over my shoulder. These three men were such an influence on me. They helped me in ways that they probably never knew. And they're all gone now, they're all dead. You know, Brother Dalton died 20 years ago, Brother Ski died 10 years ago, and uh, Emery Tang, about the same, about 10, 12 years ago. It's kind of weird to look them up and find out they're gone, you know, after not seeing them for all this time. Now I don't know if your experience of the people that you brought to mind when I asked you were anything like mine, but I would wager that they all had this ability to see what you needed at the moment. They cared enough, and they had the ability to deliver it in some way, and they weren't afraid. Deliver it. They weren't afraid if you were going to be angry at them or if you screamed and ranted and and told them that you hated them. They were willing to risk that to give what was needed because they were present enough and they are emotionally regulated enough to be able to do that for you and for so many others that we'll never know. Now, they weren't perfect, of course. They had their issues and problems and everything else, but they were perfect enough. They're perfect enough in those moments. And all of this is based on awareness. It's all about awareness. Are you, are they aware enough in the moment to be able to do what they did? To be able to be present, to see what's going on. Not to bring in some pre-cooked, one-size-fits-all code, but to see what is going on and be able to deliver that at that moment. Even if it breaks the rules, even if it breaks the code of the law. It's all about awareness. Think about it. Because without awareness, nothing else that we want in life follows. And we say that in the program. You know, it's all about sobriety. Sobriety is the most important thing because without sobriety, nothing else follows. But why is sobriety so darn important? Because without sobriety, you don't have awareness. And if you don't have awareness, nothing else follows. You can't have presence if you're not first aware. And so this is why it's all about awareness. Jesus' way that he's talking about, the contemplative practice that we use to follow Jesus' way is all about awareness building, setting the foundation for presence, because presence is what can connect us. Now, why is this true? Why is it all about awareness? Why is awareness so key? Because we've talked about this, that the the, the spiritual journey, spiritual formation, is really more about subtraction than it is about addition. As we're doing our spiritual practice, our, our rituals, it's not that we're trying to find something out there outside of ourselves that we can grab and acquire and bring in that will complete us. It's the exact opposite of that. What it is, is subtracting, It's stripping away it's letting fall all the illusions that we have built up that block us from seeing that everything we need is already here, that God has never withheld anything from us and never will. Everything that we ever need as human beings has been here and been in place since the beginning of time, but we won't see it as long as we're looking through the filter of our illusions, our worldview, that mental construct that we have built of ourselves. Yeah, I'm a nurse for 44 years. That's who I am. What happens when you retire? And that is stripped away. Can we now start to see who we are without that construct, without that experience even? And so this subtraction is going to be experienced as suffering. We talked about Richard Rohr saying, there is two paths to transformation, great love and great suffering. Why is it those two? Because both of those and only those have the power enough to strip away our illusions. When you fall in love, the illusions fall away. You're just connected to the other person, whatever it is. You're not yourself anymore. Your definition of yourself now includes the beloved. But as soon as you fall in love, you're setting yourself up for suffering. What are you gonna do when you lose what you love? That the suffering also has the ability to strip away our illusions and bring us back to love again. That's the way this works. It is through that process of suffering and and finally loving that we develop the awareness that allows us then to be present, to have that sense, to lose that sense of a separate self and see that underneath everything is connected. So both Jesus' way and this contemplative practice that we're talking about will create in us if we're willing to stick with it, if we're willing to stay in the hot seat What Carl Jaspers, a theologian and philosopher, called limit situations. And limit situations are interesting. Limit situations are simply situations that take you to your limit. They take you to the precipice. They take you to the end of yourself in terms of what you think you can control, what you can manipulate, what you can make fit the outcome and the circumstances that you want in life. Some things in life... You just hit that limit, and you realize, there's nothing I can do to change this. Now, what do I do? You have a choice. At the precipice, you have a choice that you have to make. I can accept my powerlessness. I can accept my vulnerability. I can accept that I am not ultimately in control, and I can then give myself over to a power that's greater than myself. That would be moving forward or I can run back and double down and do the best I can to just control everything and just work on it from that point of view, get back into my fortress. But now I'm not going forward anymore. Now I'm stuck, basically camping outside the gates of Eden. Can't go back. Too afraid to go forward. But a limit situation that it will be set in place by Jesus' teaching. He is always putting us in those paradoxical positions. But we realize we can't go forward with everything that we know, everything we've used. What is the choice that I'm going to make at this point? When we get to that limit, when we get to that precipice, when we get to the end of ourselves, are we going to make that choice, admit our vulnerability, admit all of these, or are we going to run back again? But if we run back again, we are continuing to live the illusion of separateness that we are separate from, in competition with, not connected, not in love? Are we going to risk the suffering of the loss of everything that we thought we controlled in order to move forward? And we've been talking about the effect, the experience of the effect that these people, these aware people have had on us in our lives. But what do you think was the experience of those people, those aware people, as they were living that awareness in our lives? Were they aware of their awareness? I suppose is one way to look at it, right? Now, maybe they were in a theoretical sense. You know, if if you ask them, just like I'm trying to tell you, I'm aware that awareness is absolutely key. And I'm aware that I've been building awareness in my life. I can tell you that much in the abstract. But in the moment, in real time, at the moment of exchange between you and such a person, are they aware of what they're doing? In other words, this mother in law we were talking about, you know? Was she aware when she walked into the grocery store? I better be really nice to this cashier so she'll show up at my funeral. You know, was she thinking that, you know? And even if she wasn't thinking of it in some self-aggrandizing way, was she aware, oh, you know, I need to remember to be nice to this person? Well, you know, we all have days like that where we got to do that, right? But was that really her experience? See, someone like that who within seven years in a city the size of Vegas was able to bring in this many people is someone who was just living it, was lost in that sense of connection with another person, even if it was just a casual encounter at a grocery store that's who she was. She wasn't thinking about this stuff. She wasn't trying to make it happen. And she certainly wasn't thinking about an outcome beyond just the exchange that she had at the moment. She was lost in that presence. She had become awareness, become presence. Thirty-some years ago, I was reading a... uh, a daily devotional by Oswald Chambers. I don't know if you've heard of Oswald Chambers. He was uh, born in the late 1800s, but uh, early 20th century Scottish, Bob and Anne, are you? yeah, com- compatriot. He was Scottish, Baptist, evangelist, and teacher, and, and uh, very famous for my utmost for his highest was the name of this, uh, this devotional, if you've ever seen it. now. You know, if I read it again today, I realize that my theology has veered quite a ways from his, but not the fervor with which he put every page down. What I remember about reading his devotional was that every page just had such fervor to it, such conviction, you know, such devotion to God. It was just jumping off the page. He wrote a little piece on it called Christ Awareness, and I want to read this to you, and it's in your inserts if you want to follow along, if that that helps a bit, because I want to try to make this point to you about the nature of awareness and the way that we experience it, and the way that it is experienced when it really has been assimilated into our lives, okay? So he says, whenever anything begins to disintegrate your connection, your life with Jesus Christ, Turn to him at once, asking him to reestablish your rest." Now, in the parentheses, what I'm doing is I want to try to bring some of these terms he's using back into the vocabulary that we're using so we can make a one-to-one kind of connection, all right? So whenever anything begins to disintegrate your life with Jesus Christ, I want to say your connection with Jesus Christ here, just so we're sure about what we're talking about. We've said over and over, the reason we're here is about connection. That's why we live and breathe as human beings. That's how we're wired neurobiologically. It's all about connection, right? So whenever anything begins to disintegrate your connection with Jesus Christ, turn to him at once, asking him to reestablish your rest. And by rest, I would say it's presence. Presence because presence is always experienced as rest. When you're fully present to the moment, it's not that you're thinking about some other moment that would be better than this one or how you need to import something or get rid of something to make this moment better. To be fully present to the moment feels like rest. Asking him to reestablish your rest, your presence. Never allow anything to remain in your life that is causing the unrest, which we would experience as anxiety. Think of every detail of your life that is causing the disintegration, the disconnection, as something to fight against. That is something that you should allow to remain. Ask the Lord to put awareness of himself in you and your self-awareness, that would be your egoic sense, your mental construct of a separate self that we were just talking about, you know, separate from, in competition with. And your self-awareness will disappear ask the lord to put awareness of himself in you and your self-awareness will disappear he will be your all in all a complete life is the life of the child it comes right from jesus teaching right when i am fully conscious when i am fully conscious of my awareness of christ there is something wrong now that's pretty counterintuitive isn't it When I am fully conscious of my awareness of Christ, there is something wrong. As soon as we're thinking about something consciously, we've stepped aside. We've talked about this over and over. As soon as you put thought to it, as soon as you put a word to it, you've limited it, you've drawn a box around it, and you've set it up on a shelf someplace. You've taken a snapshot, and it's on the wall, but you're not living the moment anymore. So as soon as I become consciously aware, everything changes. A child of God is not aware of the will of God because he or she is the will of God. When we have deviated even slightly from the will of God, we begin to ask, Lord, what is your will? Get what he's saying there? A child of God never prays to be made aware of the fact that God answers prayer because he is so restfully certain, convinced, trusting, that God always answers prayer. If we try to overcome our self-awareness, our egoic thought, through any of our own common sense methods, we will only serve to strengthen our self-awareness tremendously, which means more thinking, more illusion of separation. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. That is, Christ awareness will take the place of self-awareness. Wherever Jesus comes, he establishes rest trust, right? Conviction. The rest of the completion of activity in our lives that is never aware of itself. You see where he's going with this? What's he really saying? He's saying that we may think that awareness means thinking consciously about our awareness, right? But the thing is, as soon as we begin thinking about our awareness, it only is self awareness by definition. Why? Because thinking limits us to our minds. All thinking happens inside your mind, right? So if you're thinking, you're in your mind, which means you're disconnected from everyone and everything else. But we can be aware here's the beauty we can be aware of something, anything. Without thinking about it, without forming words in our head about it, building our awareness, breaking down and stripping away the mental illusions that we were talking about is the prerequisite to presence. Can't have presence until we strip away that which we think keeps us from everyone else. But being truly present means no longer thinking about being truly present. Or we're not present anymore, right? We need, in other words, to become presence. As Chambers put it, we need to become the will of God, not thinking about it anymore. Now, some people can do this naturally without any kind of formal practice. They're very intuitive that way. They make those leaps. You know, maybe this mother-in-law that we talked about, did she really have any kind of practice that got her to the point before she got to Las Vegas that she could establish this presence with that community I don't know I'm thinking probably not I'm thinking that's just naturally who she was or through the combination of suffering and and events that she went through she became this person with maybe a lot of a lot of formal training or maybe it's a combination of the two who knows But some of us are going to arrive at this much more quickly and easily than others. And some of us are really going to have to work with it. I had to really work with it. And it was a slog, let me tell you. Now, some ancient Christians, in trying to establish this kind of presence, awareness without thinking, would literally say short prayers Kyrie eleison. You know, maybe you've heard these kind of short Jesus prayers. You know, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. They would say them hundreds of times a day until they said the prayer was now saying them. They started out saying the prayer, but once they said it enough, the prayer was saying them, which means there were no words anymore. They didn't need to say any words anymore. The saying of the prayer built up the awareness of God's presence to such a point that they were just living it and they didn't have to practice it anymore. In other words, they became the prayer. A few years ago, I ran across a, uh, a book that was written by the uh, the monks of New Skeety. And New Skeety is a, um, a monastery, an Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox monastery in upstate New York. And uh, you may know of them because they're famous for breeding German shepherds. I don't know. If they're also famous for certain pastries and... Uh, that's how they keep the thing going. And if you're wondering why Skeety? What the heck is Skeety? Skeety was the name of, a, of an ancient uh, Christian, one of the first monastic communities in uh, Egypt back in the third and fourth centuries. So these are the monks of new Skeety. And they put out a book called In, uh, in the Spirit of Happiness. And, in, in the first part of the book, they had a fictional seeker, someone who came to their monastery to represent everyone and all of them who came to the monastery seeking something different. And they have this person in uh, a... Uh, conversation that just runs through chapter after chapter um, with different monks and with the, uh, the lead Abba or Abbot of the monastery. And this one, I want to read you this exchange and see if this kind of ties down what we're talking about here in terms of awareness without thinking, about prayer without ceasing, about presence throughout seamlessly our, our waking days. The seeker says, when we last talked, we were talking about St. Paul's injunction to pray without ceasing. But to be honest, I'm stymied. How's one supposed to do that? When I try to pray always, I'm doing the very thing you say we shouldn't do, which is attempting to repeat verbal prayers over and over again. Then when I don't say prayers, I feel like I'm not praying at all. What can I do about this? And the father replies, there's a paradox, all right, but it's really not the impossibility that you're suggesting. What we're really looking for is to live in a state of prayer. Being in a state of prayer involves living in such a manner that regardless of what we might be doing, we're always praying. What do you mean by that? How do I get to that? asks the seeker. Well, for starters, wouldn't it seem to require that we strive to become conscious of being in God's presence? Because prayer is, above all, a relationship. And this has nothing to do with feelings. It's a question of awareness, something that's present regardless of what we're feeling. Yeah, but I still don't see how that translates into actual practice. I mean, my problem is that when I'm busy living, I seem to forget God's presence. Then when I try to change that, it seems to take me in the direction of saying prayers all the time, like repeating the Jesus prayer. You have to remember that the state of being I'm talking about has nothing directly to do with an act. For example, simply uttering a series of prayers doesn't constitute a state of prayerfulness. Your mind could be a million miles away. Prayerfulness is a condition we bring about in ourselves that is the correct climate for any individual act of prayer. And in fact, for everything else we do, Now, this can seem subtle, but it's not just word games. It means recognizing that we're not always thinking about everything that we're conscious of, all right? Take yourself right now. You know you have two feet, but you weren't actually thinking about them before I mentioned them. In a similar way, we can become increasingly conscious of being in God's presence in spite of the fact that we're not always thinking thoughts about Him. But that still doesn't answer how we're supposed to bring the presence of God to mind when we're not thinking about it. Well, a very good way to do this is by consciously associating elements of our daily experience with the presence of God, allowing them to remind us of it, When we do this over time, they not only sustain our consciousness of being in God's presence, but actually strengthen our determination to live in a way that pleases him. For example, this is one of the intentions behind the customs of making the sign of the cross before a meal or before some other activity. We do this to call to mind God's presence. But such an idea can be creatively adapted in any number of ways. Let's say a person works in an office where phone calls come in rapidly, one after another. What if this person were to associate each ring of the phone with being conscious of being in God's presence? Now, initially, this will obviously require deliberate work on her part, but as she perseveres in doing it, the practice will become more and more a habit. Eventually, every time the phone rings, or any bell for that matter, she'll be reminded of being in God's presence. What are you thinking right now? Are you thinking with me? Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Come on. In the context of a busy office where phones ring frequently, being and remaining in God's presence will gradually become the habitual state that the person lives in and which spurs her to always give her best, and which in no way interferes with their work. Now, I don't know if you're also thinking along with me, Brother Lawrence, right? Come on, Brother Lawrence in the kitchen, didn't want to be there, wanted to be in the chapel doing monk things, but he realized just turning the cake in the pan with all the grease and all the noise and the smoke and everybody yelling brought to mind God's presence more and more and more as he served the brothers in his house. He was able to take that. He said, I just pick up a straw off the ground and it's a sacred act because again, all of these things, he said, we think we have to invent all these complicated and formal ways of coming at God. It's not so. Just do what you normally do all day long, but do it for the sake of God. Same idea here. Can we associate what we do in such a way that it's bringing God's presence and if we do that over and over again, it just becomes baked into the cake. It just becomes who we are. In a way, the process can be likened to repeatedly placing a drop of red ink into a pail of clear water. At first, the red color won't be perceptible. But over time, should the process continue, the steady addition of drops will change the color of the clear water to red. In fact, the point will come in which there won't be a perceptible distinction between the water in the pail and the ink in its container the way in which we mindfully and deliberately form the habit of being conscious of being in the presence of God, the way it gradually begins to color our whole life is a process very much like that. And so if in the course of consciously building this habit of being in the presence of God, then no matter what we might be doing or thinking about, it becomes an act of prayer simply because we're performing these acts in a prayerful state. So take heart. As human beings, we can't think much more than one thought at a time. But if we train ourselves, we can think about whatever we have to think about without it interfering in any way with our dedication to God because of the prayerful climate of our interior reality, our consciousness. Okay, this is a huge distinction that we're making here from Oswald Chambers to the New Monks at Skidi or the Monks at New Skidi to Jesus, to Paul, all talking about the same thing. This distinction that we make about awareness, that it doesn't have to include conscious thought. In fact, when the awareness has really overtaken us, it doesn't include it at all. There is no conscious thought. You know, think about it. we do this all day long. Think about it. If you're having a conversation with something and your phone is on vibrate in your pocket and all of a sudden it starts vibrating, now you have the choice that you can pull it out and take a look at it. But if you're really having this conversation, you're aware that the phone is ringing, but it doesn't form words in your mind and you're just involved in the conversation. You never break eye contact. You never lose a word of what they're saying in that conversation, even though you're aware that the phone is ringing. You're aware but you're not thinking about it. What are you doing when you're driving? And are you thinking about every single turn that you make? Are you thinking, okay, here's where I turn on the blinker. Here's where I turn. Make sure it's 10 and 2. Come on. Are you really thinking all that stuff? Now, you had to when you were learning to drive, but are you really doing that now? See, it's not until someone cuts you off that the words start forming, right? (laughs) That's when it happens. But most of the time, think about how much we do without even thinking about it. How many of you type at a keyboard? Isn't it, if you stop and think about how amazing that is, that all your fingers are doing this, that you know where the keys are, you don't think about it. They just know where to go, you know? You can, I don't know about you, but you can look at a word and say, oh, I can type that with one hand. You just know it. You feel it in your hand. You don't have to think about it. How did I just do this? I don't think about it. I just did it. We're uh, doing things that we're aware of all the time without thinking about them. But see, we had to practice that before we could do it. Had to practice driving, had to practice typing, had to practice speaking before you could speak without having to translate it into the words. Learn in second language and see how you have to think about it for a while until you can finally think in the target language and then you don't have to think about it anymore. This is what we're talking about here. Being able to do things without having to think about them. And it's the same with the awareness of God that we're talking about here. Most of us are going to need some sort of practice, ritual, and structure that we're disciplined to, like he's talking about with the red ink, right? Until the prayer is now saying us. We're going to have to need to do something consciously and practice it until it is so in our muscle memory, it's so a part of us that we don't have to think about it anymore. But what I'm telling you is that we don't really enter pure presence until we get to that point where we're not thinking about it anymore. Because as long as we're thinking, we have objectified it. We put it in a frame, under glass, on the wall. We're not thinking about it. We're not present to it anymore. And this is what the practice of contemplation actually is. It is the structure. It's the ritual of building this awareness. Try this for the rest of the day. Try monitoring your thoughts. Just watch where your thoughts go, Okay, Become aware of what you're thinking. And when you are aware that now you're thinking, right? You won't always be. But as soon as you become aware that you're thinking something, notice that thought. Is it something that you're actually doing, or is it off in past or future or somewhere in abstract land? You know? And start to take hold of it. Every time you become aware you're thinking, Where is that thought? And then, take a look at the quality of the thought. Is it positive or is it negative? I tell you what, overwhelmingly, it's going to be negative because that's what we continue to process. The things undone, the things that are wrong, the things that are triggering us, those are the things that we're going to be fixated on. Now, if I asked you, to put a percentage on how much you spent time you spend not thinking about the thing you're actually doing during the day. If you're in an average, it's going to be around half the time. 49% one study showed people are not on average thinking about what they're actually doing. They call that mind wandering. But if you're in a state of anxiety, if you're having a state of depression, if you are asking me for counseling, Then that number goes up to 80 or 90 percent. I've had people say 99.9 percent of the time, I'm not thinking about what I'm actually doing. And then when you add on the fact that at least 90 percent of that mind-wandering thought is negative, so you're going through your day 90 percent of the time not thinking about what you're doing, and 90 percent of that thought is negative, and you're wondering why you're having a bad day. The key to happiness is also awareness. It is presence. But we have to cultivate this. So to start just monitoring your thoughts and just see where they're going during the day and seeing the quality of them and what it is that keeps coming back over and over again, you need to prove to yourself that you need to practice awareness. And that would be one way of doing it. Is the inside of your head like the inside of a pinball machine or a popcorn maker? Is that where it's constantly going, or are you able for periods of time to really focus to really be there in truth we don't really do awareness directly it kind of sneaks up on us awareness is a quality of life it's a state of being it's the effect of the consequence of you know the ramification of being engaged in a process of contemplation in a process of awareness building, stepping away from the constant thoughts in our head, if we just keep showing up to the process, right, then awareness will build in us as a consequence, as an effect of that cause. And that's the beauty of it. We don't have to try to force awareness. We can't do it anyway. We just show up over and over, keep putting the drop of red ink in the pail. And eventually, we will be more aware. We will have built our awareness. Jesus said that his way is all about love. And we have identified, I should say, we have defined love as identification with the beloved, complete connection with another or with everything around us. But we can't be connected until we're present. And we can't be present until we're aware of the truth of things, the reality, which is what? That we're really all one with each other and with God, that the separation is the illusion that our minds perpetrate on us. And we can't be aware of this truth until we've stripped away the illusions that our mind has perpetrated, that small self, that egoic mind, until that's stripped away. None of those dominoes can fall all the way to presence and all the way to the experience of the unity of God's love. We have a lot of work to do to get ourselves to the point that we can do that reliably, repeatedly. So this is where we start, the stripping away process, the stepping away process that is contemplative practice that we will will be talking about in the next few Sundays Now life is going to help us out, right? The pandemic helped us out collectively, stripped away a lot of things that we thought was part of us. And the traumas and the events that you suffer, the retirements, the firings, the laying off, the losses of people, and even of a pet dying, will also push you further down that road, down that descent, down that stripping away process of who you thought you were. With all these things in place, So life will help us, and if we will see how this works and partner with life, not resist the suffering, resist the grieving processes that we need to go through, if we will willingly take that journey with life as it presents, then just as Jesus said, all we have to do is keep showing up to the process. The way Jesus put it, seek first the kingdom, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all else will be added. Show up to your moments, and the awareness that is a foundation for everything that we need will begin to build in your life without you even thinking about it. And that's the key. Not supposed to think about it, just live it. Let's pray. Father, these are words, lots of words, a Sunday morning full of words, whether sung or spoken. But they signify something. They signify a different way of looking at life. They signify a different way of living life. And they can signify the need for us to engage, to put forth the energy and the disturbance that it will take for us to move in new directions. So help us to take these words and turn them into the repeated action that we need to find a deeper connection with you. Help us find the energy someplace, especially at the beginning, or the curiosity, or just the challenge that will get us beginning the process of engaging your way, your way back to yourself so that we can stop thinking about every moment of our lives and really live them in the way that you intended. We want to be your kingdom, Lord. Help us to do just that. And thank you for being with us every step of the way, giving us everything that we need, withholding nothing, and loving us as you do. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this. All in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.